We've been preaching through the New Testament since the beginning of the year, so we're six months into this. Now, as I was preparing this sermon, this is going to be a bow on the end of the whole series. And I was thinking that part of me felt like there's so much going on in our world that people are going to feel like, why are we talking about the Bible and Bible reading and getting into our Bibles? There's so much going on that needs to be addressed. I mean, a lot of you have been cruising social media. Maybe you're cruising social media right now and you're seeing a lot of hot takes about a Supreme Court ruling and a lot of people who have very strong opinions about what's happening and you are, you're working up about that because you've got strong opinions and you want Christians to think this or you want non-Christians to understand this about Christians. And I've thought if we're going to read the Bible, are we missing sort of the bigger cultural point that's going on, the bigger cultural relevance? And I was worried about that, praying about that. And then I think God hit me with a ton of bricks saying, are you kidding if there is so much going on in our culture, so much controversy, so much concern, so much change, so much upheaval, we have to be rooted in Scripture. We have to be grounded in the Bible. It would be a tragic mistake for us to think that we've got to add our opinion to social media and not be spending time in Scripture. We would totally have missed the point. The point is that we are informed by God's Word, and through that we are trans formed and then we go out and we care about people and we love people who disagree with us and we kindly and graciously respond to people who maybe are upset at us or have a different opinion than us. We have to be in scripture right now. Far from being irrelevant, it's one of the most important things that we could be doing. So if you finish the New Testament, I was curious about your experience of reading through it. I was curious about what people thought. How did they think that went? What were your takeaways? And it would be fun just to have a big old discussion class and people could just raise their hands and just say, well, here's what I thought. Here's a question I had. Here's my opinion. And we're not going to do that because it would take way too long. And I don't know that I care about what some of you have to say either. Um, that's a terrible thing to say. I said that out loud. That's an inside thought, Patrick. Sorry about that. We went to Disneyland several years ago, the Magic Kingdom. You know, this is where dreams come true. This is where people go to live out their childhood fantasies. This is where every kid is happy. This is where every parent is happy. This is where wonderful things happen. And I had never been to, this was Disney World actually, I'd never been to Disney World before. And I went and I got there and we walked through the entrance to the front gate and down that main, you know, entry promenade way. And I thought, this is okay. It's okay. Now, I feel bad even saying that because some people, you even like Disney World, it's the best thing that has ever been created. It's the pinnacle of human achievement and civilization. Are you kidding me that it's just okay? It was okay. It, it was fine. I had a good time. I mean, I, I think that I thought about it like it was just going to be this incredible magic floating through the air and people were going to be super happy. But there were long lines at the rides. The concessions were way too expensive. There were some kids that weren't always happy because it was either too cold or too hot or they were hungry or they were sleepy. It was fine. Disney World was fine. And I, I almost feel guilty admitting that to you this morning that it was fine because it's supposed to be magical. And I think there's a lot of people who read through the Bible and they get done and they close that back cover and they're like, it was all right. It was okay. I mean... 
I, I would probably rather watch Netflix and there's some ways that, I don't know, it was fine. There were some things that were good, and, but it was okay. And I think people feel guilty for, for being confused and struggling with how they engage with scripture. Me even getting up on stage this morning and saying that some people don't have this magical experience when they read the Bible is a little dangerous because there are people that find it incredibly difficult to get through scripture for a variety of reasons. Some people find it tedious. There's a lot. Some people feel like maybe if uh, they could sum this up, did it really have to be four Gospels? Could you have just hit the highlights? So some people find it tedious, uh, hard to, you know, fit in the schedule. Some of you found that really difficult. You found it difficult to get into the scriptures every day because you have stuff going on. You have life, you have appointments, you have things you've got to do, places you've got to take your kids. It's hard. So it felt a little tedious. Did we really need all those pages? Uh, some people find it confusing, find the scriptures confusing. Revelation, we spent like three weeks reading through Revelation, and how many of you were like, what is happening? What is going on? This is, I don't understand this, and it just makes me want to cruise through it so I can get to the end. Some things you read in the scriptures, the scriptures were even offensive. They were even things that you read and you were like, man, I don't know that I like how Paul worded that about slavery or about women. I don't like that he didn't come right out and condemn that thing. Or I didn't like that he didn't affirm that thing. The Bible, some people find offensive. And so as they read through scripture, they have sort of this Disney World experience. Like it's, it's fine. It's good. It's not, it's not bad. But I did find it a little long. I did find it a little confusing. And there were some parts that I would have edited out had I been in charge of the content. I, it's one thing to think that Disneyland is fine, but a Christian thinking the Bible is just okay. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here either, because I think we, are, we think as Christians we're supposed to have a magical experience with the Bible. We're supposed to get done and feel like we have communed with the infinite God, and it's not supposed to be hard, and it's not supposed to be confusing, and we're never supposed to find anything offensive in Scripture. And so for me even to get up there here and articulate that that might be an emotional reaction that some of us or some of you have had feels almost concerning. Like, Patrick, are you okay? Should you really be the one on stage? talking about the Bible. Now, let me reassure you, the Bible is awesome. It absolutely is awesome. But it would be a lie to say that people don't have those experiences with Scripture, that they don't find it difficult to get through, that they don't struggle with uh, get it, getting up in the morning and wondering, like, do I really have time to dig in, or can I just do it later, or I'll do it at night, and then they end up falling asleep before they get very far into it. There's, it would be a lie to say that people don't find it confusing. It would be a lie to say that Christians even sometimes don't find the Bible offensive. Now, I have a, a, a hypothesis that I want to run by you, and, and some of it is I wonder if we as believers have tried to make the Bible manageable for others. We recognize that it can be long, we recognize that it can be a little bit confusing, and we recognize that it can be offensive, so we've tried to make it manageable. We've tried to take some of these stories in Scripture, and we've tried to kind of soften the edges, and then we've tried to make it something a little bit more palatable. For example, how about the story of Noah and the ark? This is the image we think of, right? The, this is in a million children's books. 
And, and I understand, it's a great image. There's Noah, he's happy right along with the hippo, the lion, and the elephant. They're all smiling, and there's a song, and they're just, it's just going along. Do you think this is an accurate reflection of what was going on in the story of Noah and the ark during the storm? Humanity outside the boat? Like, is it a kid's story? No, but have we smoothed down the edges a little bit? Have we shortened it a little bit? Have we put happy faces where there maybe weren't happy faces? Have we made Noah look like he's having a grand old time where he might have been confused about what was happening and what the future was bringing? And, and again, this isn't an, an indictment. You should teach your kids these stories and you can use these kinds of illustrations. But maybe if we have been continually spoon-fed on a diet of this kind of stuff, when we open up the big 1,500-page book and it's tedious and it's disturbing and it's confusing, no wonder we're tempted to just close the front cover again and say, you know what, that's not really for me. I'll watch the VeggieTales version. Because that is more palatable. I can handle that. I can take that. Now, some of you are like, so, Patrick, should I not read my kids' Bible stories? No, totally. But maybe every once in a while you should say, hey, you know, I don't know that Noah was that happy on the ark. I don't know that it was just this fun place where they were all just singing songs for the 40 days. There might have been some danger and confusion. Part of the story involves all the people that didn't make it on the boat. It's not just kids' stories, because even as we present a lot of Scripture, confusing stuff gets kind of cleaned up a little bit. Even sermons do this, and there's an indictment on me when I do this as well, where we try to take something that's dense and complex or nuanced, and we try to reduce it down to like three steps for a better life, and they all start with the same letter so that they're easy to remember. Well, if that's the way God wanted Scripture presented, why didn't He present it that way? Or did He need me to come along and reduce all this complexity into something simple and palatable that everybody could remember with alliteration? Or maybe there is some complexity, there is some difficulty, and the challenge is part of the process of learning about who God is and what He has done in the world, what He will do in the world, and what He wants to do in our lives. The Bible is real. It's real. And it's hard. And some of our biblical heroes made really bad choices. And the Bible, like, shines a light on those bad choices, and we don't always know what to do with that. We cannot break it down into short TikTok videos that we can understand in under 10 seconds. It's real. So some people, some Christians, have read Scripture, and their reaction is to just reject it all. I have talked with people who have, at least as a presenting factor, walked away from their faith, and they said it was because of what was in the Bible. They're like, if this is how God presents himself, I can't, I can't, I'm out. And I think that's short-sighted. I think that's wrong, because the Bible is awesome, but it takes some work on our behalf to get into the awesomeness of it. The other trap that I think a lot of Christians fall into, so if you're in the room this morning, you probably haven't walked away from your faith. I don't know. I, don't, I guess I don't want to make that assumption. But if you're in the room this morning, the other two traps that we fall into when we struggle with the Bible, when we find it difficult, people tend to uh, reverently ignore it. They value it. They think it's true. They think it's good. They just don't engage with it. 
These are people who want their kids to learn it. They want it to be taught in their church. They want their kids to go to Bible classes. But if you were to t ask them, well, like, do you regularly engage in scripture? You'd get a lot of, well, um, you know, life, I, you know, I just haven't. You'd get a lot of hemming and hawing because they value it, but they don't engage in it. Some of you have heard of uh, Barna. It's a Christian organization that does statistical research. So it's always interesting for guys like me who work in churches to find out like what's kind of an overview, statistic overview of what people are doing, thinking, how they're engaging in all kinds of areas at church. And they did this. Uh, they recently published some Bible reading statistics. Now, you've got to really nuance the questions when you're doing statistics because you can get all kinds of data and the data can be manipulated. But what they wanted to know is people who habitually attend church, how regularly did they engage in scriptures? Uh, just audience participation. What percentage do you think they discovered? People who regularly attend church. 15%? I heard 1%. That's a real pessimist <laughs> over there. <laughs> What was that, Malachi? 82. 82, that's really high, huh? What was it? Go ahead, go to the next slide. It was 82%. <laughs> Malachi, how in the world did you know that? Unbelievable. Now, how many of you, that seems suspiciously high. Like, even, for, even if you're an optimist, you're like, 82%. You're just looking around the room and you're like, I know they don't read the Bible every day. I don't. There's no way. There's no way. That seems suspiciously high. And you know what? It seems suspiciously high to Barna, too. They were like, this, something doesn't seem right. So they rephrased the question and they said, how many Christians who habitually attend church regularly read the Bible outside of church services? Any guesses at what this percentage is? 24? Malachi, do you have any guess? 82? That would be incorrect. It's the opposite. It's 18% of people who regularly attend church services read scripture outside of church services. 18%. I'm trying to get a bead on anybody here in the room. Are you like this really? 18%. That was a little bit more depressingly accurate, which means that for eight out of 10 Christians, the only Bible they get is when I put scriptures on the screen on Sunday morning. That's not great. I learned the Spanish word for that this week. That's no bueno. <laughs> we got to do better than that. And I do think that we probably have done better than that over the last six months. If Barna were to come to Woodbury and poll us, we'd probably be looking pretty good. But generally speaking, that isn't great. People who habitually attend church. High value, low engagement. I have this book that I, I reference all the time, and it's got this amazing quote in it from a, uh, for a first century rabbi about how to teach your children to study the Bible or study the Torah. That's, of course, what they would describe. And this rabbinical quote is if you truly wish your children to study Torah, study it yourself. Otherwise, your children will not study Torah, but only instruct their children to study it. And I think that's a lot of Christian families. I want my kids to do it. Do you do it? Eh, not so much. If you really want your kids to do it, model it for them. So either we reverently ignore it or... Maybe more common, certainly worse, we ignorantly revere it. I think this is what a lot of people do, is that they engage with it in a way that the Bible doesn't really shape them. Their ideologies shape what they read in the Bible. 
Um, let me give you a, a couple of examples, because this is sort of a self-help approach to Scripture, and this feels very common. I listen to, I watch a lot of sermons, and I want to be careful because there's a lot better preachers out there than me, so I'm not trying to c- critique anybody, but I hear a lot of sermons where the presentation is excellent. The audience is engaged and they're moved. The, the, the speaker is incredibly charismatic. They're doing an incredible job of motivating the hearer and the content is terrible. They're presenting something and the audience feels like they're hearing something from God, but it's not really scripture. Can I give you a couple examples? I won't call anybody out because you could go back over my library of sermons and there are some real stinkers. And if I had a professor come in and critique me on my, you know, hermeneutic and presentation, there's some, I'm, I'm putting myself in this category as well. But like, for example... I've even read books where the story of Jericho, famous story, they march around the walls, the walls collapse. That story gets sort of repackaged into this self-help, how do you knock down the walls that are holding you back in your life? Rather than, hey, we need to trust God and fully rely on His power. It's about advancement and success and progress. Uh, Just this week, I heard a sermon about Peter walking on the water. I heard two sermons, actually. One was good, one wasn't, um, about Peter walking on the water. And the sermon wasn't about, hey, faith in Jesus. The sermon, the whole thing was about, hey, you have people in your boat that you need to leave behind and ditch those people because they're holding you back from achieving your success in life. And you're like, I I see how you got there, but that is wrong. (laughs) If that was the point of the story, then Jesus would have said that. Here are the red flags when you are ignorantly revering the Bible. In other words, shaping it or reshaping it around our own beliefs. When you, not God, are the central character of Scripture. When you are the central character, you are the hero. You know who the story of Scripture is about? It's about God. You get to play a part. God loves you and wants you and wants to draw you in. But the central character of the story is God. Another way is when the Bible is reduced to a guide to personal success, specifically in like life, business, finances. I've seen a lot of books about here's how you, here's how you make money the Jesus way. You know Jesus. He was incredibly wealthy, right? He did really good financially. His 401k. No, that's not. He was broke. He was poor. He relied on the generosity of people around him, mostly women, to, to, to fund his ministry. When the Bible is just reduced to a guide for personal success. Thirdly, when the Bible consistently supports rather than challenges current cultural or political values. Red flag. When it supports rather than challenges And then fourthly, the fourth red flag is when complex and difficult stories are just reduced to step-by-step principles. It doesn't mean that this can't happen, but when a preacher says, here's three steps to, you should be careful. You should just say, I want to make sure that what they're saying is actually substantial according to Scripture. So before we, we're going to wrap up here in just a little bit, but I want to just make one point about what do we do now that we've read through the entire New Testament? What's next? What, 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 should, what would you hear from your preacher here on Sunday morning that you need to do next now that you've finished the last page of the book of Revelation? Here's my step-by-step plan 
for getting the most out of Scripture. Ready? You got a pen? You're taking notes? Your phone? Ready? This is, I mean, this is deep stuff, and I don't want anybody to miss it. Here it is. Read it again. I'm serious. Read it again. And actually, here's what you need to do. You need to read it again and again and again and again and again. You need to read it from cover to cover. Some people, I read the Bible cover to cover. Well, then do it again. The Bible is designed to be lived in and lived with through the entirety of your life. You never graduate from the Bible. You go through it again, and you know what's going to happen the next time you go through it? You're going to discover things that you didn't notice last time. God is going to have you in a place in life that he didn't have you before, and things are going to be impressed upon you and challenged in you and transformed in, in you that you weren't prepared for the last time you went through it. You've got to go through it again and again and again and again. Um, I want to talk to you just for a second about a guy by the name of George Mueller. And I just love this picture. He died in 1896. So this is an old picture or something like that. This guy, to me, looks like he has joy. He just looks like he's a, he's a happy, content person. George Mueller, for those of you that don't know, was a pretty fascinating individual. Started some orphanages in uh, England and ended up ultimately having about 10,000 kids at this variety of orphanages, which I, I have three and I don't look like that. Can you imagine having 10,000 and looking this content? It's unbelievable. There's all these stories. You should read a biography of him. Um, he never went into debt when he was building all these homes. He never even asked for money. He just said, God, uh, we're going to need some help here, and God would provide. One particular story that you probably, if you know anything about George Mueller, you probably come across that I love. He had 300 kids in his orphanage at this time. They had completely run out of food. And his philosophy was, I don't go begging for anything. God will provide. Completely run out of food. Morning, wakes all the kids up, gets them up, gets them dressed for breakfast, marches them down to the table, sets them all around the table. No food. There's nothing in the kitchen. And he thanks God for the food. And he gets done with the prayer. And there's a knock at the door. The local baker says, I could not sleep last night. I just had a sense that I needed to make bread for you this morning. And he brought in all these loaves of bread for the kids, and they put them around the table. They hadn't had any food up to this point. Baker leaves, closes the door. There's another knock at the door, opens the door. It's the milkman. His cart has broken down right outside the orphanage, and he says, I got to unload this stuff. It's going to spoil before we can get it fixed. Is there any way that you can use it? So cool. So cool. I want to have that sort of reliance on God. It's unbelievable. But anyway, that's not what I want to talk to you about. What I want to talk to you about is a speech that he gave when he was 71 years old. He had a bunch of young Christians had gathered to hear him talk, and he gave this speech. It's a little lengthy, but tune in. He says, according to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Now, that's a little bit of a surprise to me that, that he would go to happiness. I'm like, oh, George Mueller, well, you do look like a happy guy, but happiness, is that really, is that the most important thing? He goes, other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention, but I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. 
day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. Okay, ah, interesting. Now, in brotherly love and affection, I would give you a few hints to my younger fellow believers as to the way in which to keep up spiritual enjoyment. It is absolutely needful in order that happiness in the Lord may continue that the scriptures be regularly read. These are God's appointed means for the nourishment of the inner man. In other words, he's saying, hey, a lot of you Christians are starving to death because you aren't feeding yourself the truth. And it's no wonder that you're not happy because you haven't substantiated your life in the eternal values of God himself. Wow, that, I'm, I'm starting to get excited about this. He says, consider it and ponder over it, especially we should read regularly through the scriptures consecutively and not pick out here and there a chapter. Leviticus, I don't know, Isaiah's getting a little boring, skip over it. No, read it through consecutively. He goes, now I have been doing this for 47 years. I have read through the whole Bible about a hundred times. I always find it fresh when I begin again. Thus my peace and joy have increased more and more. And here's George Mueller at the end of his life looking pretty good. What's your skincare routine? What's your exercise regime? What, what's your diet? How do you, he's like the Bible, man. That's what does it, the Bible. And maybe that's why some of us are looking joyless and dead and tired and we're not even caring for 10,000 orphans because we haven't fed our souls. I love that, I love that. Read it again and again and again and again. Let me give you, <laughs> let me give you three values for engaging in scripture, okay? And they all start with I. I'm so sorry because they just made a big deal about that. But I couldn't help myself. I still am a preacher. Three values for engaging in Scripture, and then we'll wrap up. Number one, immerse yourself in Scripture. Do you remember back in the day when you used to listen to music, you used to listen to an album? Not a single, an album. And you had to take your hard-earned money from slaving away at McDonald's or wherever, and you had to go to Sam Goody or Tower Records, and you had to peruse through the, the, the records or the CDs or cassette tapes, and you had to, you had to say, this is the cassette I want. I want to listen to all 12 tracks on this cassette. And you would take it up and you would buy it and you would give them the money and they would, you would walk home and you would clear out some space. You would tell your parents, please don't bother me. I'm going to be listening to music. And you would shut the door and you would open up that record or you'd open up that CD or you would open up that cassette. I think I have a picture of the very first cassette I ever bought. <laughs> Just kidding. This was not it. You hold it carefully. You don't want any smudges. It's brand new. And you place that cassette in the tape player and you close it carefully and you press play and you sit back and you look through the album cover. You read the lyrics. You experience the music. And that's how you, that's how you took in music. And now it's just Spotify and you listen to like half the song. At least that's what my kids do. You experienced it. And this is going to be a surprise to you, but you, did you know that the Bible doesn't say read the Bible? I mean, yes, of course, you read the Bible. Did you know the Bible doesn't command you to read the Bible, though? Do you know what verbs it does use? Look at this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Uh, this is Moses. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. 
I want them on your hearts. Impress them, stamp them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses, on your, on your gates. He's saying, saturate your world with scripture. And he's just saying it in a bunch of different ways. Make sure it's the conversations that you have when you wake up in the morning and when you go to bed at night. It's what you decorate your house with is what he's saying. You decorate your house with scripture. You write it across the door frames. So as, as you walk into your house, there's scripture for you. Wouldn't that be amazing? Some of you do. I've seen some of your houses. You have great verses uh, uh, hanging up on the walls. You, you impress, you talk, you tie, you write. That's the verbs he uses. Or how about Psalm 1, 2? This is about being happy or being blessed in the Lord. This is the person who's blessed in the Lord, whose delight is in the Torah, in the law of God, and who meditates on it. Now, meditate is not that Eastern, clear your mind, sit crisscross applesauce in a dark room with no distractions and somebody humming. That's not what the Bible means by meditate. This word meditate, you know what it literally means? I've told you this before. Hebrew has always got a concrete meaning that, that's made into an abstract meaning because it's a very practical language. The word meditate means to chew. When you're eating, you chew. Chew on the Bible is literally what it's saying. Chew it. Isn't that good? Like, taste it. Like, enjoy it. Savor it. Chew on it. Let it fill you. How about Colossians chapter 3, verse 16? Let the message of Christ come into your life and set up camp and build a foundation and build walls and put up furniture. Let it dwell among you richly as you teach and you admonish one another with all wisdom. And look at this. Then you need to sing scripture at one another. Sing it at one another. So not only are you decorating it, not only are you living in it, not only are you chewing in it, you're singing it to one another as you sing psalms, as you sing hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Scripture isn't read. You are immersed in it. You're surrounded by it. You're saturated in it. It's a lived experience. Number two, interpretation. Immersion, interpretation. This is so important because this is really where a lot of Christians struggle. A lot of Christians have the philosophy, and I understand the validity of this, but it's the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And so I read this thing, you don't agree with me, you don't agree with the Bible. But what they're neglecting to mention is that in this process, there is a little bit of interpretation going on. What does the Bible say? What is it that you believe? What is it that you feel is settled? Texting is awesome. It's so great. I know a lot of you like to call, but texting is great. The problem with texting is that I, my reading comprehension with texts is not awesome. <laughs> my wife will send me a list of things I should pick up from the grocery store and I'll get about two thirds of it, which I think is pretty good. That's like an 80% on a test, right? It's pretty good. Yeah, I'm also, oh, I'm also pretty good at math. Um, <laughs> Here for all your tax needs. So she'll text me this list of things to pick up from the grocery store, and then I'll get home and she'll be like, well, where's the shampoo? You didn't ask me to get shampoo. You just said to get conditioner. And then the problem with text is that there's a written digital record of what was actually said. And so she'll, she'll pull it up and she'll be like, oh, see, do you see right next to the word conditioner? Why would you think I just need conditioner? It always goes together. It, she, she doesn't say it like that. She's very kind and sweet and wonderful. You all know Corrine, right? I heard somebody make a scoffing noise. That was funny. 
And it even has the time. I texted you at 5.47 p.m. Buy shampoo, and it's in bold. Patrick, how did you miss that? (laughs) Turns out the problem isn't with the text. The problem is with the reader. Because sometimes, as a reader, we miss things, we don't see things, and it's so valuable to engage in Scripture and community and to hear what other people are thinking and seeing, and sometimes we have some editing going on. Just a real quick example, Ephesians 6.2, honor your father and mother. What's well, a simple one? Honor your father and mother. What, but what, is it, what does that mean? How to honor our fathers and mothers? What would your parent find honorable? What if you're an adult and your parent has some conflict with your spouse? How do you honor your parent in that? I know that never happens, but imagine if it did. How would you honor your parent and still honor the person to whom you made a lifelong commitment? That simple command requires interpretation. It requires you being filled with the Spirit, reading Scripture, consulting community, and trying to understand how does this play itself out in your life? Because we are swimming in our specific modern American culture, and our culture is kind of a mess, it feels like right now. And when we read scripture, we read scripture through that lens, and they had a different culture, and they had a different mess, and they wrote through that lens. There's a little work that we have to do. Thirdly, immersion, interpretation, and then intention. I want to, uh, I just want to wrap up with this. It's Mark chapter 4, verse 1. It's, it's such a good story. I know you're familiar with it, but it's, it's so valuable. And so we'll, we'll close with this. But it, it just says, again, Jesus began to teach. He was the word. He was teaching the word. He began to teach. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he actually got into a boat and set out from shore just a little bit. And he continued to teach from the boat, the water, I suppose, carrying his voice further. So all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. And he taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching, he said, and it's so interesting, verse 3, he says, listen. Everybody's like, all right, Jesus is talking. Let's listen. Take notes. A farmer went out to sow his seed. And and you might imagine that there was a little confusion at that line. Like, wait, listen, we're going to hear a story about agriculture. You're going to teach us how to farm? And that's exactly what he does. He says there's four different kinds of soil. You know the story, hopefully. If you don't, just read the next few verses. He doesn't say this is a parable. He doesn't tell them, by the way, this is a metaphor. He doesn't even explain it to them. He just says there's four different kinds of soil. Stuff grows on some. Stuff doesn't grow well on others. See ya. That was the whole thing. So the 12 are like, Jesus, we understand gardening. What were you talking about? Look at verse 10. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables, and he told them, hey, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. Listen to how Jesus taught. This is incredible. Verse 12. So that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Jesus taught in a way that people who didn't really want to learn what he was saying would not get it. They would not get it. That's how he taught. He did not want people to abuse what he was saying, so he drew them in, and people that were interested followed him. People that weren't, they were just going to misuse his words anyway. He's actually quoting Isaiah in this section, but it's so amazing to me that he communicated in a way that if we aren't open and humble and poised to learn, we're going to miss it. 
And I feel like that's what I read a lot on social media from Christians who are totally, (laughs) I think, getting it wrong and misusing Scripture because they aren't humble and open to poise to get it. They're trying to force their political ideologies into Scripture and then mangle Scripture into something else that they can post on social media for points among their own team. If your heart isn't wanting to get it, you're not going to get it. You have to hunger and thirst. It has to be a driving force in your life. Immersion, interpretation, and intention. So here's my challenge to you. If you've finished reading scripture, read it again. 